0: Hello and welcome to Technicast, a podcast series showcasing research from across the arts and humanities. I'm Olivia Ahrens and I'm new to the Technicast team. I'm excited to be taking you back to our life writing theme this week with our guest Gemma Turner. Gemma is a researcher who recently completed her history MRes at the University of York. Her research focuses on the experiences of carers in the early modern period and what caring meant to them. I'll be back for a chat with Gemma about her work a bit later on in the episode, but first, I'll hand over to Gemma herself.
1: Thou hast caused me, through the weakness and sicknesses of others, to receive strength of healthy and vigorous instruction. And when I call to mind the time that is past, it rejoiced me to think thou hadst made me the servant of thy servants and to suffer with them that suffer when I might have enjoyed more worldly pleasure. Lord, Thou hast made me the companion of them that love thee, and keep thy commandments. It is easy to skim over archaic religious language without really paying attention to what is being said. But in this statement, Elizabeth Isham, a 17th century gentlewoman, clearly explained that she had come to see caring as her calling. Come to see, however... Is a key phrase here. For much of Elizabeth's life, her caring role sat uncomfortably with the narrative she wished to tell about it, that she had devoted her earthly life to God and would one day join him in heaven. But through a process of writing and reflecting as she constructed her 60,000-word autobiographical book of remembrance, Elizabeth realised that God had always intended for her to care. It was the way that she had served him. In 1985, Roy Porter famously argued that historians of medicine should take the patient's view rather than focus on the medical profession. But no early modern historian has yet taken the carer's view. This is the unique perspective that my research takes. Using the life writings of Elizabeth Isham and Mary Rich, it examines the experiences of carers, their motivations, what caring meant, and how carers fit caring into the lives and narratives they told about them. As today's theme is life writing, I'm going to talk about how Elizabeth Isham reconceptualized caring for her sister after writing her book of remembrance. From feeling primarily religious anxiety about her caring role, Elizabeth came to searing as her calling. The act of writing about her life significantly drove this reconceptualization. I want to make a few simplified points about early modern godly culture before we begin. Firstly, women like Elizabeth Isham believed that their lives on earth were only part of their stories. They would also have an eternal life in heaven with God. For this reason, getting bogged down in worldly things was unwise. There was a risk these things would distract one from God. Heaven was not, as is popularly imagined today, somewhere where the dead would be reunited with loved ones. Rather, the elect who made it to heaven would be dissolved and fully occupied by worship. They would leave behind their worldly attachments entirely. Secondly, godly women like Elizabeth absolutely believed in providence, the idea that God had planned all the events of their lives and that they therefore had a meaning which could be discerned. We still have echoes of this today. People still say things like, everything happens for a reason. Elizabeth's providential beliefs are a key to understanding why the act of writing about her life was so transformative. Now, for Elizabeth's story. The context, Elizabeth Isham was born in 1609 into a wealthy family. Unusually, she did not marry. Much of Elizabeth's family were chronically ill and died young, including her mother, who died when Elizabeth was just 16. Elizabeth spent her late teens and twenties caring for her sister Judith, whose complex health condition included mobility issues and a severe melancholy. Judith died in sixteen thirty six aged twenty six One of the most surprising things I have discovered about early modern caring is that it was religiously problematic for us. I think this is actually quite difficult to understand. We are used to caring, often unhelpfully, being betrayed as a kind, selfless act that is unquestionably good. But in the early modern period, this was not so. I believe that this was because caring was inherently bound to complex religious questions surrounding love, time and suffering. I'll talk you through how these played out in Elizabeth's case, so we can see why she later reconceptualised it. For Elizabeth... The problem of time played out fairly simply. Caring for Judith was incredibly time-consuming. Elizabeth could rarely leave Judith's side. On one of the only occasions that Elizabeth left Judith for a significant period to stay with her family in London, Elizabeth worried about Judith constantly and was ultimately called home early because she was unwell. Judith still spoke regretfully of how much she had suffered without Elizabeth during that time a decade later. Today, carers struggle with the time caring consumes because it leaves them limited time for other pursuits, like work and leisure. But for Elizabeth, the time-consuming nature of caring had spiritual implications too. Time was precious and should be devoted to God where possible. Elizabeth therefore thought that the time she spent caring for Judith was problematic. It could be better spent serving God. It was like she was choosing Judith over him. The problem of suffering was more complex. Caring for her sister involved witnessing significant suffering. For predestinarian Christians like Elizabeth, suffering was a two-sided coin. It was distressing, but ultimately worth celebrating, because it could indicate election, that is, belonging to the predetermined group of people who would go to heaven. Total contentment in this life was concerning. Elizabeth once refused to have her fortune told, not simply because it might be bad, but because she also did not want to hear, my fortune is altogether good or prosperous in this world, for then I should have feared to have been excluded out of the number of thy children who have their portion of afflictions in this life. In this context, Elizabeth was confident that Judah's suffering would ultimately benefit her. But Elizabeth herself could not remember being very ill two days together. This worried her. Compared to her family, Elizabeth feared that she suffered insufficiently to merit salvation. Though she believed she had been trialled, her trials were nothing compared to Judith's. All else being equal, Elizabeth had at least more strength of body to bear them. Finally, caring made Elizabeth face difficult questions surrounding love. Elizabeth distinguished between four types of love. worldly, human, Christian and godly. Godly love was one's love of God. At the other end of the spectrum, worldly love was one's affection towards things like material possessions and family. It was thought frivolous and foolish to love distracting worldly idols like these. Human love was just a subcategory of worldly love. Christian love was a kind of legitimate human love for other souls that followed Christ's example. It was good. It channeled God's grace and was not worldly in origin. Partly due to her mother's bad death, Elizabeth was unusually wary of worldly love. A good death involved repenting one's sins, renouncing worldly attachments, and cheerfully embracing death to be with God. But Elizabeth's mother wanted to remain among her family. Death is terrible to me. Oh, let me live with my husband and my children, Elizabeth remembered her saying. Probably in partial response to this, Elizabeth feared that if she married, she would love her husband and hypothetical children too much, and this would damage her relationship with God. While Elizabeth eventually considered marrying to please her father, she believed God intervened to stop this and remained single. Elizabeth's caring role sat uncomfortably with her sensitivity to issues of worldly love. She adored Judith and was devastated when she died. But this affection worried her. Elizabeth believed that her love for Judith drew her away from God. Considering the possibility of her death... Elizabeth was comforted when thou puttest into me that if thou tookest her from me, I might with more freeness and fullness enjoy thine own self. For seeing those whom I loved passed away, it did me good to think that I should be more wholly thine. Caring for Judith as if she had been my child demonstrated the kind of doting maternal affection that she had feared in her mother and tried to avoid. Her book is littered with anxieties about this kind of love. Whoever prefereth, mother or father, brother or sister, before thee, is not worthy of thee. My God, I desire not to love any but in thee, Elizabeth wrote. Confusingly, however, caring for Judith also protected Elizabeth from more frivolous worldly loves. Feeling bound to Judith, for example, removed the temptation to engage in fashionable society by adding a further reason to forego it. Judith still spoke regretfully of how ill she was when I was from her in London and how she desired my father that I might come home, a decade after Elizabeth's trip. This gave caring a deeply ambiguous spiritual status with respect to love. Should she have been doing it? What had God intended for her when he intervened to prevent her marrying? We can see, then, that Elizabeth's caring role caused her significant religious anxiety. It consumed moderate quantities of her time time which she had explicitly put aside to devote herself to God rather than marry, at his providential intervention. Caring also involved witnessing extreme suffering, which led Elizabeth to conclude that God deemed her, in comparison, unworthy of earthly trial. Finally, caring interacted ambiguously with the ideas of love, being both symptomatic of her overmuch worldly affections and preventative of some of Elizabeth's more frivolous worldly attachments. This ambiguity was its own problem, it made Elizabeth genuinely uncertain as to whether she should be caring at all. There appeared to be conflicting providential evidence. But the act of writing and reflecting on her experiences changed the way Elizabeth viewed her caring role. When Elizabeth wrote her book of remembrance after Judith's death, she was not simply documenting, but attempting to use what she recalled to learn something new about herself and about God. If caring was a frivolous worldly pursuit, It would mean Elizabeth had fretted away her long, healthy life on something without value. This was an unacceptable conclusion for someone who wanted to devote themselves to God. But I believe that writing down her experiences made Elizabeth realise how much providential evidence there was that God had intended her to care. This helped her rethink Karen's relationship with the concepts of love, time and suffering too. First, she rethought her anxieties surrounding suffering. As Elizabeth partly wrote her book of remembrance in memorial of her sister, the aspects of caring that Elizabeth found trying were not foremost in her mind when she began. But the process of recording the events of her life in a detailed, chronological fashion changed this. In writing her book, Elizabeth remembered a range of circumstances which would have been trying. At times, caring for Judith had been harrowing, and usually it was physically and emotionally exhausting. Elizabeth also strongly hinted that Judith could be spiteful and manipulative. For instance, Judith repeatedly reminded Elizabeth that the now deceased mother knew Elizabeth would look after her, and of how ill she had been when Elizabeth was away in London. There are passages in Elizabeth's book which suggest Elizabeth increasingly realised and reflected upon what she had sacrificed to care for Judith. The freedom to experience new things, to travel, to socialise and to have a family. Recalling these things reminded Elizabeth that her private life with Judith had not always been sweet, as she claimed. Counterintuitively, for a modern listener, this helped Elizabeth see that caring had been a productive experience. Once Elizabeth realised how much she had suffered in her role, she realised that she was not simply witness to her family's trials, but an active participant in them. Her trial was to suffer with them that suffer, but not experience bodily affliction herself. As she began to see caring as its own unique trial, Elizabeth also increasingly saw it as compassionately feeling Judith's pain. Consequently, Elizabeth could relate more strongly to contemporary discourses which related co-suffering to Christian love. This helped her recategorise the love that drove her to care. Rather than being symptomatic of a vain, worldly love, the time and affection Elizabeth devoted to Judith became an expression of Christian compassion. Rather than serving her family instead of God, Elizabeth increasingly saw herself as the servant of others, as Christ is the servant of all. Finally, Elizabeth reinterpreted Caring's relationship with time. Having witnessed many early deaths of her family, by the time Elizabeth wrote her book of remembrance, she felt old, although she was actually only around 30. She desperately wanted to understand the meaning of her long life and remarkable health. Methinks thou shouldest question with me how I have used this body which thou gavest me. We have seen that she initially feared her health, suggested she was unworthy of trial and election. After reinterpreting the love involved in caring and what it meant to suffer, Elizabeth abandoned this fear. Reflecting on what she had learned since I called my own ways to remembrance through her book, Elizabeth concluded that God gave her health and longevity to alleviate the suffering of those around her. Thou hast caused me through the weakness and sickness of others, to receive strength of health and vigorous instruction. Instead of a reminder that God did not think her worthy of trial, Elizabeth's remarkable health and long life became a sign that God meant her to care. The concepts Elizabeth used to interpret her role were not new to her. Judith had constantly tried to convince Elizabeth that her suffering alongside her counted as a trial. "'I hope, sister, as you have been partaker of my misery,' So you shall be of my joy, Elizabeth quoted her saying. But the collection and synthesis of events in her book finally convinced Elizabeth to embrace a positive spiritual interpretation of her caring role. Through writing and reflecting, Elizabeth had accumulated what she considered to be providential evidence that God had always intended for her to care. She read it in her body and in the compassion she could show, in the fact that caring had been a trial after all and in the way that caring had protected her from temptation. In turn, this helped her reconceptualise the love on which her caring was built, and assuaged her concerns surrounding her salvation status. Elizabeth explicitly stated that it was only since I called my own ways to remembrance that she gained the sense of clarity and contentment. From being something peripheral in Elizabeth's life of ambiguous spiritual status, caring became central to Elizabeth's spiritual identity she ultimately concluded that caring for the sick and afflicted was the way in which she had devoted her life to God, and the way that God had intended for her to do so.
0: Hi Gemma, how's it going? Yeah, it's going good, thanks. How are you? Good, I'm all right. Um, Full disclosure for anyone listening, me and Gemma have known each other since we were about 11 so it's all been building up to this podcast episode absolutely this is the culmination of our friendship so I'm, I'm just going to get into the questions now so I thought we'd start by talking about what it's like to use life writing in research more generally so I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about using Elizabeth life writing and the sort of points of interest and challenges involved with that
1: yeah absolutely Um, So using life writing, it's a really interesting experience, but also has a lot of like challenges with it. Mm -hmm. So um, I think one of the main things is that when you're using something like a diary or an autobiography, which is kind of what I've been using, um, there's always a temptation, both to kind of assume it's a record of kind of like what actually happened. And also that it's the same sort of thing as though someone would write one of those things now in Mm -hmm. our time. But that's absolutely not the case. So with Elizabeth Isham's Book of Remembrance, it's actually one of the first extended autobiographical pieces of writing ever, um, at least in England, and which is actually kind of crazy. Like, yeah. It's also one of the longest pieces of autobiographical writing by a woman from that time. And it's also a really unique piece of writing as well. So kind of considering those things when you're using them, actually, you shouldn't just be looking at it for content. You have to consider a really key question of why on earth, you know, did that person write it in the first place when it's basically unprecedented? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's a really interesting challenge with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for the record, I think in Elizabeth's case, the reason why she wrote it, you know, there's a an aspect of, like, we don't know. But also yeah. it's just because... You know, she was quite an anxious person and um she just had all these things in her life that she wanted to like kind of think through and sort out so that, you know, she could be more comfortable with God, as I kind of talked about. Yeah. Um. So that's what she was doing when she wrote that. And maybe she did or she didn't know that it was a really unusual thing to do. But, um, you know, that's that's why we've got it. <laughs> yeah. And obviously... You know, thinking about all those things really impact how you read the content of that source. And also when you're using life writing, which I hope kind of came across in the first section of this podcast, um, is that you really have to contend with the fact that writing down, someone writing down their experiences in life writing literally does change them. So for example, you know, if I wrote an autobiography today, you know, I'd probably like reinterpret and remember and connect up a lot of things that I previously hadn't given much thought to. Um, And that would kind of, you know, change how I thought about them going forwards. And, you know, you might like realize, I might suddenly realize that there was this big turning point in my life, but at the moment I don't feel like that. So that's a really interesting part of it. And that's exactly what I kind of argued, I think happens to Elizabeth about her caring role. But if you weren't kind of attuned to that weird, you know, like what you're actually reading Mm -hmm. when you're using life writing, you might misinterpret what's going on there. Yeah. One of the real pleasures of kind of using life writing is that you get all this wonderful detail about an individual's life that like, you know, to use the cliche, (laughs) kind of brings them to life. And I think that one of my, you know, one of my least favorite things about academic history is that often you'll read a source and you'll find out all this really specific, interesting stuff about a person and the past and all their like weird quirks and anecdotes. And you never actually get to write about it because it's not like relevant. I actually think that one of my ex-supervisors, and I won't say who because I might be wrong, um he had a whole chapter at the end of his book with like for like hoarding gossip and that kind of thing scared yeah um, to get around that problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but yeah Elizabeth's writing is like a gold mine for that kind of stuff. So she writes all about her sibling rivalries and the fact she like spends too much time like hanging around people that tell us you know like that tell her she's pretty <laughs> and the fact like she like falls in love with this boy. And then well, after they spend a bit more time together, she's like, "Oh, actually, I think maybe I just got a bit excited because that's really boring." <laughs> um, she talks about like lying in her bed, gossiping with Judith, and her saying all these like horrible things to her um, that upset her, and she pretends they don't. And basically, just like all this really weird stuff. Yeah. You know, like at one point, she talks about her mum thinking she's like really like reclusive and weird, so she gets her to like keep chickens, you know, to bring her out of her shell a bit. <laughs> um, and I just think that. If you're not the person kind of reading this life writing and all this, like, stuff that someone thought, oh, yeah, someone might want to know that one day. <laughs> That's interesting. And <laughs> um, you're really, like, losing out. I think Elizabeth Singh in particular, it's great because it's the it's actually a really important piece, like, historical source for so many reasons. But it has this really, like, great, playful, like, teenage girl <laughs> energy to it, which I think is really fun.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always nice, I think, to be reading like a historical source that has some kind of fun edge to it rather than like being super dry all the time. Um, so with any historical document, I'm intrigued about how it gets circulated and preserved and then eventually ends up in the hands of historians. It seems like Elizabeth wrote about her life very extensively. So I was wondering, could you say a bit more about the text you've used in your research and how you came across them in the first place?
1: Yeah. Um Elizabeth wrote this, like, Book of Remembrance, which is, like, a really substantial 60,000-word document. She also had, like, a diary, which is kind of a bad name for it because it was basically, like, a piece of paper, like, folded up into, like, lots of tiny little squares. She has infamously really, really tiny writing. And then for each little square, she, like, writes some things about her life. Like, even, like, she doesn't... It's not quite one year per square Mm. because when she's really little... She puts like age 0 to 3, was sleeping a lot, that kind of thing, (laughs) which is quite weird. But anyway, they're both retrospective. And then she has another couple of things. Like she has some like lists of all the books she owned and things like that, which Mm -hmm. is really useful, actually. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, like the way we kind of ended up with Elizabeth's writing is really interesting Mm -hmm. because her main text, the Book of Remembrance, actually got separated from her family archive and was lost until like the early 2000s. Um, And now it's in Princeton University Library, whereas everything else about her is in Northamptonshire, where she's actually from. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a historian called Isaac Stevens, who's actually written a lot about, you know, her source and how it uh, like has traveled through archives. Because Mm -hmm. basically her whole family archive is about men.
0: Right. Um,
1: But then Elizabeth's text is like the most sensationally detailed portrait of all the women in her life. And right. we hardly we hear anything about the men. Mm-hmm. And so like, it kind of turns that whole thing on its head. And it's kind of crazy that I think in the mid 20th century, someone just sold it. with them was like, Oh, this is really unimportant. I mean, like completely lost it. So. so
0: classic. So classic.
1: Yeah. So yeah, that's, um, yeah. So it's really amazing to have that because Elizabeth actually doesn't even have a gravestone. Whereas the rest of her family do. I think she was just, I think because she didn't get married and like some other reasons, they were just like, "Uh, she doesn't matter. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And also it's just, because I think I talked a bit about it because she was literally, because of all the illness in her family and the fact that basically all the important women in her life had died by the time she's writing it, she's like explicitly trying to preserve all their memories and like write down loads of stuff about them all. Mm -hmm. So like, it's so nice. And she like was trying to bequeath it to her nieces. So that they could learn all about their family too, which is quite cute. In terms of how I came across uh, that source, I've known about it for quite a long time now. I I started using it for my undergrad dissertation, so like kind of like six years ago or so. Mm-hmm. And I found it through uh, there's a project called the Constructing Elizabeth I project that like transcribed it all online, um, and you can actually read it online if anyone <laughs> wanted to <laughs> that way. But the other woman in my research, who I think I've mentioned It's about more than one woman, Mary Mm. Rich, it's a lot less like random that we know a lot about her. She was quite an eminent person in her time because she was kind of thought to have lived this really like ideal godly life. So like her funeral sermon was published along with like lots of extracts of like her spiritual meditations and things. And like in the Victorian times in the early 20th century, people were quite interested in her, like kept publishing her stuff and like biographies of her um I can't actually remember how I came across her now at one point I was just kind of like reading literally any kind of like life writing I could (laughs) to see if anyone was ill (laughs) being looked after so um,
0: that was probably her. you've mentioned some specific examples already but I wanted to get into some of the specifics of Elizabeth because she seems unhinged um, so <laughs> I, I really love the bit about her not wanting to have her fortune told because she didn't want it to be too good. And then all the neuroses that you've mentioned about her not wanting to love her family too much. So I kind of have two this is a two-parter jammer two questions yeah (laughs) um first one is what do you think reading these things does to your opinion of elizabeth um or anyone who's reading Mm -hmm. her writing and then the other thing is was there anything else you came across and remember thinking that's that's kind of weird
1: (laughs) um so for the first part of that in terms of like what it does to my opinion of Mm -hmm. elizabeth um it's quite tricky question actually because with elizabeth She actually really struggles with the ideas that we would find odd anyway. So like, they're like not loving your family and friends too much. Yeah, And you're kind of just like, oh, she's just been brought up in that culture. So if anything, it makes her more relatable. Mm -hmm. You know, I can sort of imagine being that person who's been told all of these things are true, but I feel really uncomfortable with it. So I just get really anxious about it. (laughs) And I I can kind of see that. But with Mary, the other woman I've looked at, she's kind of internalized it a lot more. So like she has this really terrible marriage and she like loses her children. So she really has that kind of like weird, you know, the world is fleeting and you'd be silly to get too attached to it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, only God matters kind of message hammered in. And I have to admit that I kind of find it harder to like her, which is really unfair, but she like, she like, she uses all this horribly like graphic language about like, oh, she can't wait to trample over her like carnal relations to reach God And, like, at one point, her sister's child dies and she's, like, writing about the fact that she's been comforting them. After she's done that, she writes in, like, a really callous way about, like, oh, I can't wait to get to heaven, you know, because all these worldly distractions, they just keep interrupting me. It's so annoying. (laughs) Like, it's completely unfair to think that way because that's kind of just how they write. It's, like, it's biblical language they're using. You know, it's how they're meant to write and think. The contemporary opinion of Mary was that, that she was, like, an immensely kind and, like, likable person. <laughs> um, but I definitely get more of, like, a sense of, like, cultural disconnect there. In terms of, like, other stuff that seems, like, weird and unhinged, um, I think relevant to caring, and like, my actual research, it's mostly, like, the providential predestinarian stuff. I just think that does, like, very strange things as to how you think about your life. Like if everything is planned for you, but also you have control and you need to like work out, you know, if you're doing the right, that's just, it's very odd. But more broadly, like Mary in particular says a lot of bizarre things. One of the manuscripts she left is like a book of like occasional meditations on like spiritual things Mm -hmm. that she's made over about 15 years. And it's all about on like everyday objects and events. So it's kind of like a goldmine for weird stuff. Like she writes about... (laughs) The fact that she's really jealous of her dog because he's so obedient. And like, when she calls him, he like races back, even though he's really enjoying himself hunting. Whereas Mary herself, she like when God calls her, you know, if she's enjoying herself doing something, sometimes she like ignores him and she thinks that's really terrible. But like, she writes about the fact that... <laughs> She has this bird she keeps in a cage and he's like, she's like, oh, I'm so jealous because he's protected from worldly temptations, you know, I wish I could be caged up and safe like that. She's also constantly saying really weird things like, I think at one point she says something like, oh, I wish I could gather up all the tears I've spilt in repentance of my sins and then I could put out the great fire of London with them, <laughs> which, yeah, this is probably true. There's actually a, a historian called Raymond Anselman actually write a whole article about her crying because she cries so much. So yeah they're both quite weird
0: yeah I love it I do really enjoy it and I feel like what you mentioned earlier about um one of your ex-supervisors having like a chapter of his book dedicated to like just weird miscellaneous things I feel like that's our um Facebook chat Gemma I feel like you just dump all, (laughs) all the really weird things into our Facebook chat like guess what she said this time so maybe you need to actually make that more of a concrete thing Gemma an actual document absolutely
1: it's frowned upon,
0: like in like proper academic stuff, but it's what everyone wants to know, really. Exactly, exactly. So you've mentioned that obviously you're writing about Elizabeth, but you're also writing about Mary Rich. And I was wondering how do the lives and life writings of these two women compare? So are they significantly different? You've already said a bit about that, but is there anything anything else yeah. you want to mention?
1: Um, Yeah, so I'll go like a little bit of an overview as well. So Mary Rich was around slightly later than Elizabeth, um, although they do overlap. Um, She was born in 1624, whereas Elizabeth was born in 1609. Um, And then most of Mary's writings are from kind of the 1660s and 70s, as opposed to the 1630s. Her main writings are her diaries, which are like very long actually, they're like, I think it's about 2,600 manuscript pages. Um, also an autobiography and, like, her spiritual meditations, as I mentioned already. Um, and basically, Mary was caring for her husband, Charles, who had really severe gout. Um, so, like, he was a wheelchair user and, like, he couldn't even, like, move in bed or anything without servants helping him, so... Mm. needed quite a lot of support. Really interestingly, I found that both Mary and Elizabeth fixated on the same kind of issues while they were caring, but their experiences were like totally different. So while Elizabeth essentially became more comfortable with her role, as I said, um, Mary, it was kind of the opposite. So she starts off being relatively okay uh, looking after Charles because everything kind of really squares with the narrative she's telling about her life. So like... She's really stressed out by how much time caring consumes because it takes away from God, but she's kind of okay with it because she thinks, she basically thinks it's not her fault because she's following her husband's commands, which is what you're meant to do. Um, And she kind of thinks, well, God knows that if I could, I'd spend more time like with him. With suffering. It's quite significant that Charles is, is basically an abusive husband. Mm. So all the time that she spends with him is like pretty grim. He kind of like verbally abuses her a lot, at least. Um, and so on top of all the stuff that Elizabeth struggles with, she also has that. So right. it's definitely yeah. like suffering. <laughs> but because she has those beliefs about mm. suffering, like Elizabeth, so like it's a good thing and it purifies your soul and it shows you're part of the elect, is actually really helpful for making her comfortable with her role. And additionally, it like Mary thinks it makes total sense that she suffers while she's caring, because basically she thinks she sinned by marrying her husband in the first place, because she married him for love against her father's wishes when she was a teenager, right. and also she thinks she like loved him excessively. I think she says, so she has like a quote where she's like, "He was most, most righteous in punishing me for overloving a creature and for letting my bitterest crosses come from where I expected my greatest comforts." It's actually pretty horrible, Yeah, <laughs> but that's kind of um, what she's thinking. Mm. And then with love, you know, kind of linked to that, she thinks that basically the horrible task of caring for him is kind of like weaning her from the world. So she thinks that um, basically God's trying to make her worldly life really horrible, so she'll come to the source of, like, real joy, like him. So, yeah, she's kind of okay with it. But then in 1673, Charles dies, and by that point, she'd been caring for him for, like, 20 years, and basically, her spiritual identity kind of falls apart. Mm. So um, she'd been blaming caring on what she saw as her spiritual shortcomings. So like the fact that she got distracted by worldly things and never had any time to pray and stuff. Um, and so basically, once that excuse is gone, and she's still obviously not like perfect, she can't really cope with that. Right. She thought it was all about looking after him, but it wasn't. Um, and also, because caring had been a really good way for her to, like, show Christian love to people and, like, sinners, like, i.e. her husband. Um, Without that, she kind of, she starts saying she feels really, like, unuseful is the word she uses Mm. um, to, like, her fellow man. And she gets very upset about that. And also, without the trial of looking after him, she feels a lot more distant from God because she was so used to, like, having him as, like, her sole comfort. Basically, once she stops suffering, she feels a lot more distant, and so she gets quite sad about that yeah uh-huh. and um, mary's mary's story is actually pretty tragic um but it's it's very interesting and it's really interesting that they hinge on the same kind of things
0: yeah it's such a complicated way of thinking as well like the way people justify and like rationalize things it's exhausting yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is more of a comment than a question gemma but you can you can respond to it mm-hmm. um I'm always interested in how attached people can get to the historical people that they're researching. And I suppose this is maybe even more common when you're studying a person's life writings and you're spending so much time thinking about their thoughts. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on this or maybe experienced this yourself with Elizabeth
1: or Mary? I mean, it can, if you're using like your sources, you know, as kind of like an end, like broader themes and ideas, I think it still can be quite detached. But then at the same time, once you kind of like step back from it, it's actually really weird because you suddenly realize that, you know, these people like really, really well, even though it's hundreds of years ago and it's just kind of bizarre and sometimes I kind of think about what they <laughs> what they would think if they knew how re- well researched they were because they did deliberately both leave records yeah. but maybe not not for this purpose and I felt, like, <laughs> I feel like Mary would think I was a bit of a heathen and Elizabeth would just mm. be quite confused but I don't know it's hard to say but yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting experience because um well you feel like you know them really really well but actually, you're getting such an incomplete picture of them and it's filtered through all these strange lenses and you kind of just think, uh, you know, how much do you actually understand? Because, you know, if I, I can like read, if I'm like reading a text from like the past, I feel like I can have a good guess about what either of them would say about it, you know, like you could with someone you know today. Yeah. Um, but there's actually a huge danger with that, with kind of yeah. like projecting unfairly back onto them and making assumptions when you actually have a really incomplete like basis of evidence about them and also their like context to make that. But at the same time, I kind of think that's true, like trying to understand anyone. You're never gonna get completely right, but I think kind of as long as you have, if you like have enough like good quality information and you kind of like use your imagination kind of (laughs) responsibly, then you can have a good guess, which is kind of like basically what you always do in history. You have to have a guess, but tell people what you're guessing and on what basis you're guessing, (laughs) so they can make their own judgment about whether it's legit. Um, yeah, one of the things I really try to do in this respect is I try and read a lot of the things that they say they're reading. Mary and Elizabeth really helpfully write a lot about what they read. So then you can kind of see what kind of associations they would have made because yeah. you can get more into like the side guy still bit. That is super
0: helpful of them to do that for you mm. specifically, Gemma. Um, so rewinding a bit, I wanted to talk about the specifics of your research on caring. So you use the term carer. Can you tell me a bit about the term carer in a bit more detail? I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what caring for her family members actually entailed for Elizabeth.
1: So when I say that Elizabeth was caring for Judith, she was kind of mostly doing things like keeping her company and reading to her and like making medicines for her. Like she deliberately learns a lot about medicine for that purpose. Um, She, like, sits up with her at night, you know, when she's really unwell. Um, She buys a lot of presents. She kind of, like, monitors and manages her diet. Um, And it's really clear that, like, whatever she's doing for her, Judith couldn't manage without her for any significant period of time. But what she didn't do was provide a lot of practical support because, basically, they're a wealthy early-modern family who have servants. And, like, whether or not they're kind of able to do that from themselves independently, you know, they'll have someone cook and clean and wash and dress them. Um... However, it's really interesting, Elizabeth explicitly distinguishes between kind of receiving help because you kind of want to, and that's what's done, and because you need help. So at one point she explicitly says that like, she she takes a great delight in like being her own servant because she wants to leave, you know, support to her sister who has more need of it. Um, so yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Elizabeth is clearly like Judith's like main carer, you know, to use that word. Um, which is in the context of even her own family, is quite interesting because her mother has like a constant parade of like friends and neighbors um, and like Elizabeth's aunts and uncles and things come and look after her. But with Judith, that doesn't really happen. And I think there are basically some like changes in the family structure. Like a lot of the, by the time Judith is really ill, a lot of Elizabeth's, you know one of Elizabeth's grandma died, uh, so like one of her uncles has died, um, her, one of her aunts, Kind of has her own problems. Like I think Elizabeth said, she's suffering with like poverty and losing strength in her limbs and things. And her brother, who is uh, very slightly younger than both of them, mm-hmm. um, he goes off to school, then he goes to university, then he goes traveling, and then he gets married. So basically, all these people that could have helped right, kind yeah. of aren't there aren't there anymore. Mm. Um. So yeah, it ends up being Elizabeth, and because she doesn't get married, she just kind of stays there. So that was interesting.
0: Um. Why did you? decide to use the term carer to describe elizabeth are there any problems with conceptualizing her role using this relatively
1: modern term so yeah there are basically i'm using the term <laughs> carer as kind of like an imperfect shorthand yeah to describe people who like unpaid looked after like a sick or a disabled family member for like a significant period of time um, I'm absolutely not saying that the term or the concept existed in the 1600s, or that either woman kind of identified as a carer. They're like they didn't. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: although Elizabeth, like I said, did eventually see her purpose as kind of like looking after others. But I chose the term because although there are contemporary terms that Mary and Elizabeth use, um, mainly they say things like tend and look to and nurse, and they just also talk about like being with, you know, the person. And they use a lot of the language of service as well. Basically, all those kind of terms have their own associations and specific meanings. And I wouldn't want to like either apply them indiscriminately to everything they're saying or like have those meanings carry over into what I'm saying about it. Yeah. So, you know, for example, like the term nurse, for them, it had a lot of associations with like children and wet nursing, basically. And for us, it has this kind of like medical, professional vibe, which also isn't appropriate. I went with carer because it's kind of an imperfect shorthand that's kind of just drawing attention to the fact that in the 1600s, people did have roles that were kind of analogous to modern day carers, but it hopefully doesn't say imply too much about that. Um, It's still a controversial move because I think, you know, applying a concept to people who didn't have that concept, but I kind of think it's justified. You know, there's this idea called hermeneutical injustice, which is about people being unable to express aspects of their own experience because there's kind of a gap in the concepts of that in terms of their society. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of think that's what's going on here. Mary and Elizabeth aren't carers, but they still have a kind of category of experiences like that, which we can analyse. And it's kind of been useful to use that anachronistic term because, you know, by doing that, you can ask questions like, why didn't the concept exist? What did they have to understand that instead? And for the record, it seems to be like, You know, they're using things like worldly and Christian love and charity and service. But because they're using those things that aren't built for it, it comes with a lot of complicated religious baggage that I've talked about how it's got mixed up in it really weirdly.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And how did you get into researching carers in the first place, Gemma?
1: Really, it kind of just came from uh, what I was doing as an undergraduate. So my dissertation there was about like experiences of melancholy. But basically, I kept reading the sources about, like, the person suffering with melancholy or whatever. Yeah. Um, but in the background, there was all these other people who were, like, looking after them. And I noticed, actually, people were writing, like, a lot about the about these other people. Um, and, you know, I was ignoring them. And after I did a bit of digging, I kind of noticed... Everyone else was ignoring all these people too. <laughs> so I thought, why not focus on them?
0: <laughs> yeah, made sense. And finally, this is the very last question now, Gemma. I was wondering again if we could speak more broadly about the history of caring. So you've you just mentioned that early modern historians haven't really addressed the perspectives of carers. And I wanted to ask if you could elaborate a bit more on why you think this is something that's been neglected, if you know, and then
1: how your research is situated into this wider history of caring. So like one of the reasons, um, obviously, was that traditionally, because caring is associated with kind of like women (laughs) and work in the home, it's under-researched because it wasn't thought worth researching. Obviously, that hasn't been the case for a few decades now. Historians have been, been making like a really active effort to reverse that problem. So now I think it's really just like a case of it not occurring to people to ask these questions. And also it doesn't, it's not occurring to people that it's possible to answer them in as much depth as I have. Like at the moment we have really, really good histories of things like informal medicine and like histories of disability and stuff. But there was this famous pa- paper in the 1980s by Roy Porter that's all about how medical historians should focus on the patient's view rather than like the medical elite.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I think that by doing that everyone kind of has forgotten that there's other perspectives out there other than the patient or like the doctor yeah (laughs) and so like while there started to be a bit more work on caring now it's mostly been about like the medical or like the practical side of it so like you know, what people are doing and how it's distributed in families and things. Mm. Um, Whereas mine is about how carers actually made sense of what they were doing. The reason I think I've had kind of so much like success is probably because of my methodology. Um, (laughs) It's probably a strong word. (laughs) (laughs) Because basically, I just read all of this life writing really, really thoroughly, like multiple times. Um, And I like really tediously like tagged and noted every single like, Variation of them talking about it wasn't anything related. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did it with like really openly just to kind of pick up the kind of themes they kept coming back to. Doing it that way was just so crucial because if you like go in, I think often now, not like when you're actually doing the research, but when you're like scoping out sources, there's a temptation to like digitally search it or just like skim through it. Um, and if you do that with, say, like Mary's writing, Everything she says that's really explicitly about caring is really, really boring. She basically <laughs> says the phrase, you know, was with my sick lord, got no time to retire, um, like hundreds and hundreds of times. And if you just kind of went in and were like, oh, OK, you know, there's only so much you, yeah, you yeah. can do with that. But if you read everything around it really, really carefully, you suddenly get such an insight in how she's thinking about it. Like all this cryptic, interesting stuff she's saying about it is all around her actually talking about caring. So yeah, I think that's why it's worked.
0: I actually did lie a bit because I said that was the last question, Mm -hmm. but this is the rounding up question. Why do you think it's important or significant to study the historical lives of carers?
1: Um, Yeah, I think just a straightforward answer to that really. It was a basic question, (laughs) I'll admit that. (laughs) Yeah, like, you know, I think one in five people in the UK care for a family member, which is a huge figure and it's kind of crazy that we don't have a really good history of it already. And if we're ever going to give, like, status to that kind of work, you kind of need to give it history and take it seriously. Yeah. And also, if you kind of want to understand anything else in history, you know, in my research, it's been, like, lived religion and the history of family and the history of love and all this other stuff, um, you know... If you actually want to understand that stuff, you have to understand it from the perspective of this huge group of people, carers, yeah, who are kind of using those concepts too because they're using them in different ways. For both, both aspects, it's important. That is a lovely, lovely answer to end on, Gemma.
0: Thank you so much for, one, doing the podcast and, two, having this conversation with me about your research. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you again to Jen for her really interesting contribution to our life writing theme and thank you for taking the time to listen. If you'd like to get involved in creating an episode with us please do drop us an email the address in our bio. You can also find us on twitter at technicast and on instagram at technipodcast. Keep your eyes and ears out for our upcoming episodes and we'll see you soon.